You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. What to do about rail? This month, the Honolulu City Council will take up a measure introduced by Councilmember Heidi Suniyoshi to pause the project at Middle Street. But what would that mean for residents and businesses in Kalihi? We reached out to Councilmember Radiant Cordero, who chairs the Council's Transportation, Sustainability, and Health Committee, and who represents the greater Kalihi community. First off, um, I think stopping the rail at Middle Street uh, and causing a pause at Middle Street won't, won't help the project. I think if we look to who our main stakeholders are, such as Mayor Blangiardi and our Heart Board and everyone else, including listening to those calling for a pause, I really think that, yes, we can have a pause, but how much can we get and to where? I think many people have, as well as our mayor has mentioned, you know, we have enough money to get to Aloha Stadium. If we stop it at Middle Street, where it's the busiest, I would say, intersection for H201, H1, and even for Ikebike to get to, I think that if traffic congestion is the thing that we're trying to address, stopping at Middle Street will not help us. I think if we stop it at Middle Street and we consider a bus transit, uh, we would need to build an even bigger bus yard for our Oahu Transit Services. So I really hope that we can get it past Middle Street. Like if it's a phase towards Aloha, um, Aloha Stadium, um, not Aloha Stadium, but Alamoana, I think we can get there, but we need to get past Middle Street. It is, it, it's a very compact area. Um, and if I look, if we look at the local preferred alternative, um, we wanted it to go to uh, Ala Moana at the least before um, UH Manoa. So if we get it to, um, as Mayor Blanchiardi has once mentioned before, to Aloha, uh, Aloha Tower, um, I think that we need to um, then phase it to at least Ala Moana and then, you know, wherever it goes after that and then alternative routes. But once again, Little Street is, is something that I know that we are looking, uh, out for myself, we are looking to um, at least passing that hurdle because I just know that it's not going to help our traffic congestion in any way possible. And um, there, there's been lots of discussion about what to do with the Dillingham stretch. You know, uh, how are you looking at, uh, you know, what the construction for rail in that area, you know, w will affect your constituents? First off, I really hope that the Mauka shift, as uh, di Executive Director Kahikina mentioned, will help. And I really hope that we can have a partnership um, with our community, maybe the major land owners, um, as they really hope that to, to benefit from rail coming through as well. Uh, to either partner with maybe not just stations, but especially in the Malka shift. But I think that if we were looking at it, we would have to reconsider where our stations would be. So I think deciding to have it where it currently is at, at Honolulu Community College and figuring out a way of how best to um, shift it just at the right moment where uh, our undergrounding of our utilities can still happen. And I, I support the undergrounding of the utilities mainly because uh, Kalika has dealt with the power lines that are just 
hanging right above us, so close to us for so many years, longer than I've been alive. And I just want the opportunities that come from undergrounding to really revitalize our community, but also with rail coming through there to, I guess, be spearheaded by the undergrounding for utilities. I think that it comes from the, I think the Malka shift designs need to be done ASAP, and I've been asking uh, Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation for it, and I really think it's something that, I understand that there's no construction going on, but I think it's something that that heart has to come to the council, come to our community and say, these are options. How do you want to see this shift look like so that we can have a say in it, you know? Can we have these discussions now? Um, so, but I really think the Malka shift is a good shift in the right direction. If the project is paused at middle, uh, there are some who are concerned about what that would mean for Kalihi because, you know, some see rail as that opportunity to revitalize the community. And if that doesn't go uh, down that route, um, you know, and, and it, it probably, you know, won't help the residents either uh, get to where they need to go. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're absolutely right. I grew up right by the future Kalihi station. And still to this day, we have, although we have so many cars on the road, Kalihi continues to be a very transit-oriented community. And I want to really boost that, and but especially improve that, because right now we have not just um, our roads, but our sidewalks where people are walking, um, but can we lead it to better connectivity, safer walk paths to rail, or not even just for rail, but for the, our bus system? I really think this is where a lot of it can stem from. Kalihi, back in the day, from the 70s, 80s, it literally looks the same as now. I think that this is a perfect opportunity uh, to say, stop kicking the can down the road regarding our infrastructure. This is what we've ne needed and what we've been waiting for. And this is a promise that many of my my neighbors and family members were even made um, made to when rail was being considered. Like, hey, you know, with this, we can get these lines down. We can get better infrastructure. We can get, you know, a revitalized area. And there's been lots of talk, too, about uh, affordable housing, affordable rentals, and that this, you know, could be an opportunity to spur some of that development. Certainly. You know, with from Oach, from Middle Street area to New Halibai Station near Honolulu Community College, we have opportunities for centers of support for our local residents and economy by affordable through affordable housing. And whether it be through the OCCC site um, when that is moved, or um, especially along Kapalama Canal, where they said the biggest growth of development for affordable housing in partnership with Kamehameha Schools would be, I really hope that we can um, see that through because affordable housing, um, as you know, the mayor and the councils and uh, all all officials are saying that um, housing is absolutely key to support stability for so many people, whether they're experiencing homelessness or on the verge of losing their home. I really think that this is an opportunity to have affordable housing for people of all incomes, really. And this is what um, I, I was just mentioning, how uh, the growth of our city and supporting the growth of our city is 
absolutely why I support rail um, and support it being through past Middle Street, uh, through uh, the different communities, especially through my community, where it's such a transit-oriented community, you know? So um, that's why I really hope that we can get this through. I know that funding is an issue, so I'm really um, heartened to hear that there are different opportunities or different um, outlooks. Uh, I really hope that we can uh, come to come to a decision where you know Middle Street may not be the be the answer because it's already the problem. We have been talking to Councilmember Radiant Cordero, Transportation Committee Chair. The full council meets tomorrow to talk about the budget for HARP, and later this month it will have its first hearing on a resolution to put a pause on the project at Middle Street until we decide what we can afford to build. You know, sometimes the topics we cover or the guests that we interview strike a chord with our listeners. Our talk back line is how they share their thoughts when our show makes an impression on them. After talking with several voices about Oahu's rail project last month, we received these voicemails. Yeah, hi, Gary. Rofsick is my name. Calling from Kalihi. Don't have any real reason to use the rail, even if it gets built all the way to downtown. But would not ride it, even if I was out in Kapolei. It has been just too much politics, too much nonsense, too much incompetence, too much corruption, too much everything. Wouldn't get on the thing if you gave me the whole train. Hi, my name is Gary Groshit. I'm calling you from North Kohala on the Big Island. Regarding the rail, I think you folks need to stop where you're at, fix what you got, and I think you need to crawl back the money from the contractors who totally mismanaged this project. There's so much extra money made. Uh, you need to go back and sue those people and get some of that money back. Sell their homes if you have to. I don't care. But, you know, there's a lot of corruption, it sounds like to me. And I don't think we should throw any more taxpayer money into it. Thank you, Gary from Kalihi and Gary from the Big Island, for your voicemails. We'll share more listener feedback later in the show. listening to The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Unihau, 
kumulukan. Ulan, umaw, ukahulab, uhangay. Hawaiian musicians in iconic bands celebrated around the world. It happens. And that's what we're testing your knowledge of in today's Backyard Quiz. This Waimanalo native was born in 1953, started playing music at 11 years old. After graduating from Kailua High School, he spent the next 30 years doing shows around the islands as part of local acts like the Mackie Fury Band. The trajectory of his music career changed in 2001 while out surfing with friend and fellow musician C.J. Ramon of the legendary punk band, The Ramones, who introduced him to Eddie Vedder, the lead singer of Pearl Jam. They quickly became friends, and after a few informal jam sessions, the two recorded a demo, which eventually became this song. As the story goes, our mystery musician quickly developed chemistry with other members of Pearl Jam, and that demo became the song Love Boat Captain, a track on their 2002 album Riot Act. Shortly after it was released, he was invited to go on tour with them, and he's been part of the band ever since. So, do you know the name of this unofficial sixth member of Pearl Jam? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center. NareedHawaii.com. We are just coming off of a heavy travel weekend, and some of those visitors stayed in vacation rentals. The industry has seen that segment of lodging exceed that of hotels. HBR's Casey Harlow joins us live this morning. Good morning. Morning. So you've been deep in the world of vacation rentals. Yeah, it's a it's a very uh, complicated issue, but it's also a very interesting one as well. It, if you are talking about tourism at all, you definitely have to bring up vacation rentals. And um, I, I've talked to several people about this uh, regarding vacation rentals and how they view it is basically you have people who want to stay in resorts and then you have people who just want to stay within like a neighborhood. They're not really into the resort thing. All on the same highway, different lanes, you know, and people who may have stayed in a resort the first time around may want to switch lanes to get a different experience. And Nonetheless, uh, people come here, they stay in vacation rentals, they contribute to the local economy overall. And it is different island 
by island, county by county, because the rules are different. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's pretty much uh, up to the counties uh, with their discretion of how to regulate vacation rentals. Uh, I've talked to uh, Cindy Wild, who is a uh, real estate agent and a vacation rental host uh, on Hawaii Island. I've also talked to uh, Jen Russo, who's the executive director of the Maui Vacation Rental Association, just to kind of get different perspectives on it. Um, Hawaii Island passed a bill, uh, Bill 108 in 2018, and went into effect in 2019. And here we are in 2021 with COVID uh, happening last year. Uh, there are some hiccups happening on Hawaii Island from Cindy Wild, uh, from what Cindy Wild has told me. And she was saying that she's busy. Oh, yes. Uh, within my story, uh, she is pretty much booked throughout this whole year. And she's even booked up until March 2022. And I've talked to uh, several other people. Uh, Jen Russo uh, is saying that there's also an increase in activity for people who want to uh, rent in vacation rentals. Uh, and we're seeing that throughout the state as well. Uh, I've also talked to someone here on Oahu who uh, only does it within a couple months span, but he has been booked throughout uh, those couple months. So we're definitely seeing an uptick here. Yeah, and, and there has been a crackdown on illegal vacation rentals. So depending on what the county rules are for that, um, that may be uh, limiting the, the units that are available for people to rent. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for Maui, there's permit systems. Uh, I believe there's permit systems throughout the whole state uh, for each individual county. And if someone is uh, advertising on, say, like Air Airbnb, VRBO, um, those different platforms, legal operators have to have uh, the permit number and also a tax ID number to signify that they are legal. And there are uh, agreements between uh, Airbnb and Kauai and Oahu uh, that you need those in order to operate. And obviously there's that memorandum of agreement which uh, was signed late last year, earlier this year uh, with the city and county of Honolulu and Airbnb to send information to the county to help them out with identifying who's illegal and who isn't illegal. And uh, Again, we're starting to see this uptick, and definitely there, um, with HTA's latest report, uh, which came out last week, showing vacation rentals outperformed hotels once again in occupancy rates. Um, right around 66% of uh, Airbnb or vacation rentals uh, were occupied. Um, Maui has the largest inventory, and the HTA doesn't uh, distinguish what is legal and what isn't legal because their reasoning is people. Um, may rent out their units depending on the season. So it really uh, depends on the month to month and what the operators do, but they don't distinguish what's legal and what's illegal. And again, for the seventh consecutive month, we're seeing that uh, vacation rentals outperformed hotels and occupancy rates. And uh, yeah, it, it's astounding to me that you said Cindy is booked through next spring, right? It's crazy. Right, right. And um, Again, the, there's hiccups happening within uh, the um, Hawaii Island vacation rental um, permitting system. She doesn't have to worry too much because she only has one unit. Uh, she's uh, on Ali'i Drive, which which is traditionally a very visitor-heavy area. But 
as a real estate agent, she told me that she is seeing that there are issues with um, people in non-conforming use permitting zones or uh, people that's generally like in residential areas. It's not uh, for a resort zone. It's not, a, you know, anything for a vacation rental. But she, there are some issues that are popping up right now, and this is what she uh, had to say, what she thought about that system. I don't think that this was planned out very well. I don't think they really realized what they were getting into, that it's an ongoing thing that needs to be managed. What we're finding on the non-conforming use side, and this is from my real estate side, I have a deal right now where I've offered on a home that has a non-conforming use permit that expired November of 2020. And they had to send in their renewal at that time. Well, here we are. It's May, and the county still has not approved it. And she believes this is like a lack of lack of staffing, or you know, the, it wasn't the law that's currently in place with Bill 108 wasn't thoroughly vetted. And so, what happens is, if someone isn't approved for their renewal, uh, they basically lose their permit altogether, and they can no longer operate. Let's say that the homeowner did not renew within 30 days of their expiration date. They waited until January, let's say. They would have lost their non-conforming use permit, and they would never be able to get it back because they are not issuing new non-conforming use permits. So the county is supposed to have, I believe, six months to be able to answer back. And the homeowners of that particular property have a email, which I've seen a copy of, from the county saying that it is fine for them to go ahead and operate. They have done everything that they were supposed to and complied with all the rules. The county just has not processed their renewal. So very much these regulations, uh, what legal vacation renters or operators uh, hope to do is work with the county and work with communities to kind of strike this balance so that stuff like this uh, can doesn't really necessarily happen in the future so that there's a business side where people can continue operating within the rules but still crack down on illegal vacation rentals and then residents uh, don't necessarily have to be worried about like who's that down the street right right so hopefully yeah they can uh, deal with these hiccups yes. thanks so much Casey we've been hearing from HPR reporter Casey Harlow look for his stories on vacation rentals here on hawaiipublicradio.org Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a distance EMBA in travel industry management. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Even when your days shift and change, some things don't, like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air, online, or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. Of the next fresh air, how cities in the South reckon with their relationship to the history of American slavery. We talk with Clint Smith, author of the new book, How the Word is Passed, in which he writes about plantations, prisons, cemeteries, museums, memorials, and historical landmarks in eight cities. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic. Join us. 
beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Honolulu Civil Beat has analyzed data relating to police shootings here in the islands and compared it with stats nationally. Investigations, investigations editor John Hill joins us today to explain what he found. Good morning, John. Hi, Catherine. Long time no talk. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, so, so tell us about this comparison that, that you did. What jumped out at you? Well, we, uh, I compared to there's not a lot of comprehensive data nationally on uh, lethal encounters with the police. And so I used a database that appeared to be one of the most comprehensive ones by a group called Mapping Police Violence. And I compared that to a database that we have compiled of uh, police killings in Honolulu by HPD since um, 2010. And what really jumped out was that we had a much higher proportion of cases in which the cause of death was physical restraint or asphyxiation, uh, and in which the, the subject was unarmed. Uh, and and that's, that you have to sort of take this with a grain of salt because we have only 34 cases in Honolulu during that time. So a few cases, one way or the other, can kind of make the, the data look a lot different. But that was uh, something that really jumped out. It was a big difference compared to the national data. And, you know... It- it is interesting because we've just come off of the anniversary of the George Floyd shooting, and you know, and and that was you know excessive force, and and uh, he basically couldn't breathe. He was asphyxiated. That's true. That was a, a national case in which the cause of death was asphyxiation. Um, it, one of the experts I talked to said a lot of these cases occur when the subject is lying on their stomach, handcuffed behind their back, in either a police car or on the ground. Um, there's, there's also some controversy about an idea called excited delirium. Now, a lot of these subjects, uh, it turns out later, have been using narcotics or meth or, uh, or, they're, or they're just using alcohol. And there's some people who say that that contributes to these uh, deaths that occur from physical restraint because the person is in this sort of excited state and, and prone to asphyxiation or maybe heart attack. But there's other people who say that that's really a bogus diagnosis and that the um, it, it's, it's just something that's used to sort of mask police violence. So that is a controversial kind of explanation for why those deaths occur. But we have had a real problem with meth here in the islands. That's true. And, and many of the cases that we looked at, um, the, the, the person, the toxicology report afterwards did show that they had been using meth. And what about the the shootings? Well, like in the U.S. as a whole, shootings were the main cause of death um, in lethal encounters with the police. Uh, so I, I think in that sense, um, we're not, I mean, that, 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 I, I think that will always be the majority of cases, both in Honolulu and nationwide. I think one of the experts I talked to said that when, um, when a subject has a gun, the police have very few choices at that point. And this expert was saying that for de- police departments that want to get down and reduce the number of, uh, of, of deaths of subjects, they should really concentrate on these cases in which the subject is unharmed. Because in those cases, there's a lot that you can do that you can't do if they have a gun. For instance, if the subject is unarmed, you can create space, you can, create, uh, you can slow things down, you can, the police can, you know, be 
under you know they could be behind cover and not be worried about their safety so much and you can sort of uh, use time to your advantage in those sorts of incidents and that's not so much the case when the subject has a gun because there's been a lot of attention uh, around this issue you know nationwide um, you know the use of physical uh, restraints here in Honolulu I mean we should probably mention that they did change their policy after the Floyd case that's true. They did change their policy. And one of the things that they did was that the change of policy involved um, that, that they're, they're no longer supposed to shoot into moving vehicles or vehicles, uh, you know, driven by a suspect or a subject, uh, except in, in cases where uh, their lives or other people's lives are in immediate danger. Um, and there are also chokeholds were sort of elevated to cases in which um, lethal force is called for. Before that was considered, I think, an intermediate sort of step. And you also looked at uh, issues of race. I did. And what I found was that, of course, in the, um, in the national statistics, the thing that really jumps out is that, is that black people are disproportionately affected by these lethal encounters with police. Um, that's not the case on the, in, in Honolulu with HPD which is not all that surprising. You know, there's a relatively small black population, but there is a disproportionate effect on Pacific Islanders. And yep. there's, uh, I should add that there's some debate about whether that just reflects the fact that they have more encounters with police or there's something else going on. And we did have that one recent case uh, of a black man, uh, Lindani Mani, that was what just one of he was the only black man right in uh, in in the stats that you looked at i believe that's true i, I believe that's true yeah I had, um but it, it definitely jumps out that pacific islanders have been disproportionately affected by um these fatal encounters with police all right well we look forward to the, the your next story <laughs> as you uh, yeah. analyze the uh, data around uh, you know what our uh, police officers are doing but thanks so much john Thank you, Catherine. That was Investigations Editor John Hill with today's Reality Check. Read his story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the exhibition Joyful Return, featuring a gallery presentation of modern and contemporary artworks from a diverse group of 20th century artists. HonoluluMuseum.org Transparency, responsibility, accountability. Three words that perfectly describe HPR, and we can prove it. For nine years in a row, we've earned a four-star rating from Charity Navigator, an independent evaluator of nonprofits. This top rating puts us in the top 4% of those rated, and it lets you know that your donations will support a financially responsible and ethical organization. For more about Charity Navigator or to become a member, head to our website. Support for the conversation comes from YWCA of Kauai, supporting the Kauai Pride Parade, featuring art and live music, welcoming decorated vehicles for the drive through experience. This Saturday, 9 to 10.30 a.m., ywcakauai.org.
for today's Backyard Quiz, we wanted to know the name of the Hawaiian musician who plays keyboard, organ, and piano for the iconic alternative rock band Pearl Jam. Our mystery musician hails from Waimanalo, and after high school spent three decades making the rounds around the Hawaii music scene, playing for various local bands. He was then introduced to Pearl Jam's lead singer, Eddie Vedder, in 2001 while out surfing with a mutual friend. After bonding with the members of the band, he made his debut as part of the group on their 2002 release, Riot Act. Legend has it that after Vedder invited this keyboardist to join the band on tour that year, he was jumping around in, in excitement in his home, so much that it shook. Since that time, he's been a Pearl Jam regular, contributing to several albums while also consistently touring with them. This unofficial sixth member, as he's been called by fans and media, was quoted as saying, Who would think that a Hawaiian like me from a small island would be able to see the world because of the music and playing keyboards? I am living the dream. And while his official title in the group is unidentified, his identity isn't. If you're a Pearl Jam fan or a local musician, you know we're talking about Kenneth E. Gasper, more commonly known as Boom. And that's today's quiz. If you have an idea, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We had no winners for today's quiz. more comments from listeners from our talk back line after our call-in show on masks with hpr's dr kathy kozak back on uh, may 21st we received this voicemail aloha my name is eric and i'm calling from maui and uh, you know my reactions are kind of like your reactions to when somebody dies or disappointment or whatever you know it's kind of like a five-step program my first reaction usually is if i see somebody who doesn't want to wear a mask in a place that requires a mask, restaurant, store, whatever. You know, at first I'm like, I kind of like the anger response. You're like, how dare you? <laughs> and then, you know, and then I think, oh, poor store people, you know, they're stuck with this. What, they, what, what are they going to do? It's a policy. It's a good policy in my view. And then my second response is more try to get the empathy. It's like, oh, you know, too bad for you, too bad for me, too bad for us. It's, it's a collective thing. Right? It's a community thing. So, then my, my, I guess my third response gets to the workaround. You know, we figure something out. If you don't like this store's policy, there's another store you can go to. Maybe they have a different policy. Maybe you can go in there without a mask, whatever. Uh, same thing, restaurant. And if, if this is a restaurant you really want to go to, then see if they have a takeout program, takeout menu. I've done so much takeout, not because I wasn't wearing a mask, but because I just wanted to support that business. And they had their workaround was, we don't have a place to sit you, but you can do takeout. I'm like, okay, man, I'll do that. I'll take the plate home, eat it myself, and I'm supporting the business. So, you know, I don't think this is isolated to a Hawaii thing, but there are workarounds around this. And just a little over a year ago, we were much more happy and respectful and calm with each other. And so I really would like to get back to that. And uh, that's my comments. Aloha. Mahalo, Eric. Another listener sent in this email 
She writes, I thought Dr. Kathy Kozak was, uh, she very thoughtfully made sense of the complex situation while emphasizing the reasons that various members of the community may have for making different choices, a valuable contribution to community harmony. Thank you for putting together a timely and important discussion. Sincerely, Jenny Picciotto. Thank you, Jenny. You know, has our show left an impact on you? Let us know. Leave a voicemail on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or send an email to, e- uh, to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And as we come off Memorial Day commemorations, we throw the spotlight on a little-known ceremony that takes place at the Oahu Cemetery in Nuuanu. Alongside the American flags flying on the grave markers, there is a section set aside for British seamen, airmen, and citizens. For the last 45 years, a Kailua woman and her family have been remembering those who were buried there. It was a tradition started by the Daughters of the British Empire in 1947 or 1948, the DBE is no longer, but Kailua resident Caitlin Herrick Embry and her family took up the torch. For the last 45 years, they've been stringing lay from their backyard and lovingly marking the gravestones with British flags, if only for a short while on Memorial Day. Here's Caitlin. You can hear the piper. He's starting to arrive. These two plots are technically under Her Majesty the Queen. These are pots for British subjects who have died in Hawaii. Some were in the service, some were not. We have children, two small children. Uh, I think one is three, belong to a council. And then there's a 10-year-old, a lot of adults, people who were in uniform but didn't necessarily die while on duty. Though right now, captain is in front of the marker of two British air pilots who died during 1944 just off of Diamond Head. And one of our members for years of the DBE kept in touch with both of their mothers until the mothers passed away. So tell us about the Daughters of the British Empire. How did that get started here in Hawaii? British nationals who had buried Americans came to Hawaii and wanted to have some fellowship and so they joined together and it's a national organization. It's all started in 1920 in the United States. A lot of it built up after the Second World War when Americans returned with war brides. So a lot of them had been war brides. And the organization doesn't exist here in Hawaii anymore, but you continue this tradition. We're honoring those that are here who have no family. And why is that important to you? We have a lot of Americans that I know that died overseas and their families have never been able to see their graves or take care of them. And then the bagpipes would sound again across the acres of the Nu'uanu Cemetery, signaling the start of a solemn ceremony. In attendance are Caitlin's friends and family, including grandson Luke Parsons, who read a poem entitled, A Soldier. There's some corner of a foreign land, foreign field, that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave 
once for flowers to love her ways to roam a body of england's breathing english air a wash by wash by the rivers blessed by the sons of home and think this heart all sh evil shed away a pulse in the eternal mind no less given gives somewhere back the thoughts of by england given her sights and sounds dreams happy as her day and laughter learnt of friends and gentleness in heart at peace under an english heaven and then under our hawaii skies reverend david gerlach of the episcopal church offers a prayer and a blessing let us now praise famous men and our fathers that begat us the lord hath wrought great glory by them through his great power from the beginning such as did bear rule in their kingdoms men renowned for their power giving counsel by their understanding and declaring prophecies leaders of the people by their counsels and by their knowledge of learning meet for the people wise and eloquent are their instructions such as found out musical tunes and recited verses in writing rich men furnished with ability living peaceably in their habitations all these were honored in their generations and were the glory of their times there be of them that have left a name behind them that their praises might be reported and some there be which have no memorial who are perished as though they had never been born and are become as though their children after them but these were merciful men whose righteousness has not been forgotten their bodies are buried in peace but their name lives forevermore Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, in whose hands are the living and the dead, we give you thanks for all your servants who have laid down their lives in the service of their country. Grant to them your mercy and the light of your presence, and give us such a lively sense of your righteous will that your work which you have begun in them may be perfected through Jesus Christ, your Son. Captain Chris Dyke represents the British Royal Navy at the Indo-Pacific Command up at Camp Smith. He would later gather representatives of a local veterans group and senior officers of the British detachment to share stories of the seamen and airmen and all those buried here. On the 8th of April 1943, Sub-Lieutenant Eyre, Roland Highland, and Sub-Lieutenant Smith, from, uh, both from HMS Victorious, both aged 22, were flying their Avenger bomber from Ford Island when they experienced trouble and crashed on the island, and they are buried here. The day before, the uh, other grave was uh, able seaman mechanic Hagar from HMS Victorious, who was killed in a regrettable accident on board the ship. Details at this time I'm still trying to recover, but he was also buried here alongside his colleagues from the uh, same squadron, the Avenger squadron. The final marker here is for Roland Siddons, oh, sorry, sorry, Roland Jackson, who, uh, is in the, who was in the mm. Royal Engineers. He was part of a detachment of uh, Americans flying around the Pacific Islands in 1956, um, and uh, was uh, involved in an air crash. It, we believe that his body is actually interred in Punchbowl along with his colleagues, and this is a marker uh, with the, uh, the other British servicemen. There are in total 51 
British people buried in this plot, a number of civilians and consul generals marked by the bigger plots, right down to one of the consul general's children who died at the age of three, which this small marker here uh, in the corner marks. What I would like to do now is return to the uh, British Act of Remembrance. They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. And so we mark Memorial Day with a little-known service that takes place in two plots near the entrance to Oahu Cemetery every Memorial Day. All are welcome to take part next year. And that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow we check in on the political demo dilemma in Samoa. Got some feedback? We'd love to hear from you. Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with, uh, with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.